when God gives up, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. Hear ye, hear ye, court is now in session. Paul could have used those awesome words at this point in his letter because Romans 1.18 is the door that leads us into God's courtroom. The theme of Romans is the righteousness of God, but Paul had to begin with the unrighteousness of man. Until man knows he is a sinner, he cannot appreciate the gracious salvation God offers in Jesus Christ. Paul followed the basic Bible pattern, first law and condemnation, then grace and salvation. In this section, God makes three declarations that together prove that all men are sinners and need Jesus Christ. Number one, the Gentile world is guilty. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The picture Paul paints here is an ugly one. I confess that there are some neighborhoods that I dislike driving through and I avoid them if I can. My avoiding them does not change them or eliminate them. God's description of sinners is not a pretty one, but we cannot avoid it. This section does not teach evolution, but evolution or devolution he started high and because of sin sank lower than the beast. Four stages mark man's tragic devolution. Human history began with man knowing God. Human history is not the story of a beast that worshipped idols and then evolved into a man worshipping one God. Human history is just the opposite. Man began knowing God, but he turned from the truth and he rejected God. God revealed himself to man through creation, the things that he made. From the world around him, man knew that there was a God who had the wisdom to plan and the power to create. Man realized, too, that this creator was eternal. His eternal power and Godhead in Romans 1.20, since God could not be created if he is the creator. These facts about God are not hidden in creation, but they are clearly seen. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalms 19 and 1. Men knew the truth about God but they did not allow this truth to work in their lives. They suppressed it in order that they might live their own lives and not be convicted by God's truth. And the result, of course, was refusing the truth and then turning the truth into a lie. Finally, man so abandoned the truth that he became like a beast in his thinking and in his living. In verses 21 through 23, man knew God. This is clear, but man did not want to know God or honor him as God. Instead of being thankful for all that God had given him, man refused to thank God or give him the glory that he deserves. 
Man was willing to use God's gifts, but he was not willing to worship and praise God for his gifts. The result was an empty mind and a darkened heart. Man, the worshiper, became man, the philosopher, but his empty wisdom only revealed his foolishness. Paul summarized all of Greek history in one dramatic statement when he said the times of this ignorance in Acts 17.30. 1 Corinthians 1 is worth reading at this point, verses 18 through 31. Having held down God's truth and refusing to acknowledge God's glory, man was left without a God. And man is so constituted that he must worship something. If he will not worship the true God, he will worship a false God. Even if he has to manufacture it himself. This fact about man accounts for his tendency to idolatry. Man exchanged the glory of the true, true God for substitute little g gods. But he himself made that he himself made. He exchanged glory for shame, incorporation for incorruption for corruption, truth for lies. Note that first on the list was false gods, is man. This fulfilled Satan's purpose when he told Eve, You will be like God, Genesis 3 and 5. Glory to man in the highest, Satan encouraged man to say. Instead of man being made in God's image, man made God in his own image, and then descended so low as to worship birds and beasts and bugs. And then in verse 24 through 27, from idolatry, idolatry to immorality is just one short step. If man is his own God, then he can do whatever he pleases and he can fulfill his desires without fear of judgment. We reach the climax of man's battle with God's truth when man exchanges the truth of God for the lie and abandons truth completely. We'll say, quote, the lie is that man is his own God and he should worship and serve himself and not the creator. This was the lie that Satan used in the garden to lead, to lead Eve into sin. Ye shall be as God. Satan has always wanted the worship that belongs only to God. Isaiah fourteen twelve through 15, Matthew 4, 8 through 10. And in idolatry, he receives that worship. The result of this was self-indulgence. And here Paul mentions a vile sin that was rampant in that day and has become increasingly prevalent in our own day. Homosexuality. This sin is repeatedly condemned in Scripture See Genesis 18:20, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and Jude 7. Paul characterizes it as vile and unnatural as well as against nature. 
Not only were the men guilty, but even the women, because of their sin. God gave them up, the Bible says, which means that he permitted them to go on into their sin and reap the sad consequences of that sin. They received in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Romans one twenty seven. This is the meaning of Romans one eighteen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Literal translation. God revealed his wrath not by sending fire from heaven, but by abandoning sinful men to their lustful ways. But there is one more stage in verse 28 and 32. When man began to feel the tragic consequences of his sin, you would think he would repent and seek God. But just the opposite was true. Because he was abandoned by God, he could only become worse. Man did not even want to retain God in his knowledge. So God gave them over. Actually, at this time, actually to a it, in some versions it says reprobate mind in this version uh nasb version says depraved mind which means a mind that cannot form right judgments they now abandon themselves to sin paul names 24 specific sins all of which are with us today See Mark seven twenty through twenty three, Galatians five nineteen through twenty one, First Timothy one nine through ten, Second Timothy three two through five. But the worst is yet to come. Men not only committed these sins in open defiance of God, but encouraged others and applauded them when they sinned. How far man fell. He began glorifying God, but ended exchanging that glory for idols. He began knowing God, but ended refusing to keep the knowledge of God in his mind and heart. He began as the highest of God's creatures, made in the image of God, but he ended lower than the beasts and insects because he worshipped them as his gods. The verdict they are without excuse, Romans one twenty. This portion of scripture gives ample proof that the heathen are lost. Dan Crawford, British missionary to Africa, said, quote, The heathen are sinning against a flood of light. There is desperate end for us to desperate need for us to carry the gospel to all men. For this is the only way they can be saved. Bible scholars do not agree on whom Paul was addressing in Romans 2 verses 1 through 16. Some think he was dealing with moral pagan who did not commit the sins named in Romans 1 18 through 32, but who sought to live a moral life. But it seems to me that Paul was addressing his Jewish readers in this section. To begin with, his discussion of the law in Romans 2, 12 through 16, would have been more meaningful to a Jew than to a Gentile. 
and in Romans 2.17, he openly addressed his readers as a Jew. This would be a strange form of address if in the first half of the chapter he were addressing Gentiles. It would not be an easy task to find the Jews guilty, since disobedience to God was one sin they did not want to confess. The Old Testament prophets were persecuted for in indicting Israel for her sins, and Jesus was crucified for the same reason. Paul summoned four witnesses to prove the guilt of the Jewish nation. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, certainly the Jews would applaud Paul's condemnation of the Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 through 32. In fact, Jewish national and religious pride encouraged them to despise the Gentile dogs and have nothing to do with them. Paul used this judgmental attitude to prove the guilt of the Jews for the very things they condemned in the Gentiles they themselves were practicing. They thought that they were free from judgment because they were God's chosen people. But Paul affirmed that God's election of the Jews made their responsibility and accountability even greater. God's judgment is according to truth. He does not have one standard for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. We who read the list of sins in Romans, Romans 1, 29-32 cannot escape the fact that each person is guilty of at least one of them. There are sins of the flesh and of the spirit. There are prodigal sons and elder brothers. In the condemning the Gentiles for their sins, the Jews were really condemning themselves. As the old saying puts it, when you point your finger at somebody else, the other three fingers are pointing back at you. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 11, instead of giving the Jews special treatment from God, the blessings they received from him gave them greater responsibility to obey him and glorify him. In his goodness, God had given Israel great material and spiritual riches, a wonderful land, a righteous law, a temple and priesthood. God's providential care and many, many more blessings. God had patiently endured Israel's many sins and rebellions and had even sent them his son to be their Messiah. Even after Israel crucified Christ, God gave the nation nearly 40 more years of grace and withheld his judgment. It is not the judgment of God that leads men to repentance, but it is the goodness of God. But Israel did not repent. In Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul was not teaching salvation by character or good deeds. He was explaining another basic principle of God's judgment. God judges according to deeds, just as he judges according to truth. Paul was dealing here with the consistent actions of a person's life, the total impact of his character and also his conduct. For example, David 
committed some terrible sins, but the total emphasis of his life was obedience to God. Judas confessed his sin and supplied the money for for buying a cemetery for strangers, yet the total emphasis of his life was disobedience and unbelief. True saving faith results in obedience and godly living. Even though there might be occasional falls or failures, when God measured the deeds of the Jews, he found them to be as wicked as those of the Gentiles. The fact that the Jew occasionally celebrated a feast or even regularly honored the Sabbath day did not change the fact that their consistent daily life was uh, was one of disobedience to God. God's blessings did not lead them to repentance. Paul's statement in Romans 2.11, For there is no respect of persons with God, would shock the Jew, for he considered himself deserving of special treatment because he was chosen by God. But Paul explained that the Jewish law only made the guilt of Israel that much greater. God did not give the law to the Gentiles so that they would not be judged by the law. Actually, the Gentiles had, quote, the work of the law written in their hearts, end quote. Romans two fifteen. Wherever you go, you find people with an inner sense of right and wrong. And this inner judge, the Bible calls conscience. You find among all cultures a sense of sin, a fear of judgment, and an attempt to atone for sins and appease whatever gods are feared. The Jew boasted in the law he was different from his pagan neighbors who worshipped idols. Paul made it clear that it was not the possession of the law that counted, but it was the practice of the law that counted. The Jews looked on the Gentiles as blind, in the dark, foolish, immature, and ignorant. But if God found the deprived Gentiles guilty, how much more guilty were the privileged Jews? God not only judges according to truth and according to men's deeds, but he also judges the secrets of men. See Romans 2 verse 16. He sees what is in the heart. The Jewish people had a religion of outward action, not inward attitude. They may have been moral on the outside, but what about the heart? Our Lord's indictment of the Pharisees in Matthew 23 illustrates the principle perfectly. God did not only see the deeds, but he also sees the thoughts and even the intents of the heart. See Hebrews 4 and 12. It is possible for a Jew to be guilty of theft, adultery, and even idolatry. Even if no one saw him commit these sins outwardly, in the Sermon on the Mount we are told that such sins can be committed in the heart. Instead of glorifying God among the Gentiles, the Jews were dishonoring God. And Paul quoted Isaiah 52 and 5 to prove his point. The pagan Gentiles had daily contact with the Jews in business and other activities. 
and they were not fooled by the Jews devotion to the law the very law that the Jews claimed to obey only indicted them in chapter 2 verses 25 through 29 in regard to circumcision circumcision was the great mark of the covenant and it had its beginning with Abraham the father of the Jewish nation see Genesis 17 to the Jews the Gentiles were uncircumcised dogs the tragedy is that the Jews depended on this physical mark instead of the spiritual reality it represented a true Jew is one who has had an inward spiritual experience in the heart and not merely an outward physical operation people today make this same mistake with reference to baptism or the Lord's Supper or even church even church membership God judges according to the secrets of the heart so that he is not impressed with mere outward formalities or religion an obedient Gentile with no circumcision would be more acceptable than a disobedient Jew with circumcision in fact a disobedient Jew turns his circumcision into uncircumcision in God's sight for God looks at the heart the Jews praised each other for their obedience to the law but the important thing is the praise of God and not the praise of men Romans 2:29 when you recall the name Jew comes from Judah which means praise this statement takes on new meaning Genesis 29 also Genesis 49 all of Paul's four witnesses agreed the Jews were guilty before God <clears throat> excuse me in Romans 3 verses 1 through 8 Paul summed up the argument and refuted the, those Jews who tried to debate him they raised three questions number one what advantage is it to be a Jew <clears throat> Paul's reply was every advantage especially possessing the Word of God number two question will Jewish unbelief counts cancel God's faithfulness Paul's reply absolutely not it establishes it and question number three if our sin commends his righteousness how can he judge us Paul's reply we do not do evil that good may come of it God judges the world righteously Paul had already proved both Jews and Gentiles to be guilty before God next he declared that all men were sinners and he proved it with several quotations from the Old Testament note the repetition of the words none and all which in themselves assert the universality of human guilt his first quotation was from Psalms 14 1 through 3 the Psalms begins with the fool has said in his heart there is no God note the words there is are in italics meaning that they were added by the translators 
So you can read the sentence this way. The fool has said in his heart, no God. This parallel, the description of man's devolution given in Romans 1, 18 through 32, for it all started with man saying no to God. In verse, in chapter 3, verse 21 through 31, these verses indicate that the whole of man's inner being is controlled by sin. His mind, his heart, and his will. Measured by God's perfect righteousness, no human being is sinless. No sinner seeks after God. Therefore, God must seek the sinner. See Genesis 3, 8 verse th through verse 10 and Luke 19 verse 10. Man has gone astray and has become unprofitable both to himself and to God. Our Lord's parable in Luke 15 illustrates this perfectly. In Romans 3, verses 13 through 18, Paul gave us an x-ray study of the lost sinner from head to toe. His quotations are as follows. Let me just read off the verses for those of you that I know do take notes. Verse 13a, and these do need to be read in, con in their context for full impact. Psalms 5 verse 9, verse 13. Psalms 140 verse 3, verse 14. Psalms 10 verse 7, verses 15 through 17. Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, verse 18, Psalms 36, verse 1. Romans 3, 13 through 14 emphasize human speech, the throat, the tongue, lips, and the mouth. The connection between words and character is seen in Matthew 12, 34. Where the Bible says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The sinner is spiritually dead by nature. See Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore only death can come out of his mouth. The condemned mouth can become a converted mouth and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. See Romans 10, 9 and 10. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. In Romans chapter 3, Paul pictured the sinner's feet. And just as his words are deceitful, so his ways are destructive. The Christian's feet are shod with the gospel of peace. Ephesians 6 verse 15. But the lost sinner brings death destruction and misery wherever he goes. These tragedies may not occur immediately, but they will come inevitably. The lost sinner is on the broad road that leads to destruction, as it says in Matthew 7. He needs to repent, he needs to trust Jesus Christ, and get on the straight and narrow that leads to life everlasting. Romans chapter 3 verse 17 deals with the sinner's mind, 
He does not know the way of God's peace. This is what caused Jesus to weep over Jerusalem. The sinner does not want to know God's truth. Romans 1, 21, verses 25 and verse 28. He prefers to believe Satan's lies. He's chosen that way. God's way of peace is through Jesus Christ. In Romans it says, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 3, verse 18, which cites Romans 30, or not Romans, which cites Psalms 36, 1, the sinner's arrogant pride is prescribed. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The entire psalm should be read to get the full picture. The ignorance mentioned in Romans 3, verse 17, is caused by the pride of verse 18. For it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. These quotations from God's law, the Old Testament scriptures, lead to one conclusion. The whole world is guilty before God. There may be those who want to argue, but every mouth is stopped. There is no debate or defense. The whole world is guilty, Jews and Gentiles alike. The Jews stand condemned by the law of which they boast, and the Gentiles stand condemned on the basis of creation and conscience. The word, therefore, in Romans 3.20 carries the meaning of, quote, because, and gives the reason why the whole world is guilty. No flesh can obey God's law and be justified or declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight. It is true that the doers of the law shall be justified, Romans 2, verse 13. But nobody can do what the law demands. This inability is one way that men know they are sinners. When they try to obey the law, they fail miserably and need to cry out for God's mercy. Neither Jew nor Gentile can obey God's law. Therefore, God must save sinners by some other means. The explanation of that means by which man can be saved occupied Paul for the rest of this letter. The best way to close this section would be to ask a simple question. Has your mouth ever been stopped? Are you boasting of your own self-righteousness and defending yourself before God? If so, then perhaps you have never been saved by God's grace. It is only when we stand silent before him as sinners that he can save us. As long as we defend ourselves and commend ourselves, we cannot be saved by God's grace. The whole world is guilty before God, and that includes you and I. Amen.